Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Daddy's Little Girl, A Murderous Plot or a Deadly Escape? Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. On Monday, October 2nd, 2017, in the sizable town of Medford, Oregon, Sierra and Olivia Fryer, who were not yet in high school, woke up to prepare for school and went to the living room. It was chilly with temperatures ranging from 40 to 50 degrees and the sun had just begun to rise. To their horror, they discovered their father, Aaron Neil Fryer, missing and the couch where he slept the previous night drenched in blood. Distressed, they called their father's girlfriend, Michelle Robinson, and then the police. At approximately 6.42 a.m., the police arrived at the Friar residence on Vincent Road for a welfare check and were shocked to find evidence of a violent disturbance in the house. Since Aaron was nowhere to be found and his car was missing as well, the police suspected something was amiss. A further investigation showed that Aaron's older daughter, 15-year-old Ellie, and her dog were also missing. Before long, the police discovered Aaron's abandoned car and in close proximity, three suspects emerged. Aaron's oldest daughter, Ellie Rose Fryer, her 19-year-old boyfriend, Gavin Curtis McFarlane, and his longtime friend, 22-year-old Russell Pierce Jones II. Within a couple hours, the police found Aaron's body dumped over a dirt embankment on the rural East Antelope Road, along with a bloody bat and some discarded bloody clothes. Aaron, a white, middle-aged man, had been bludgeoned to death, and the police labeled it as the most gruesome murder in the town of 86,300 residents that they had ever seen. The main suspects were interrogated shortly after, and the happenings during the interrogation were quite disturbing. was 50 years old in 2017. He enjoyed shooting pool, drinking beer, and had a social group of friends that hung out at the Pier 21 where his longtime friend, Utana Stumper, worked as a bartender. Aaron was a nice guy. He often went out of his way to help his friends. He was the kind of guy who would help his neighbors cut the grass on occasion, the kind of guy that would give you the shirt off of his back. He was a guy you could call in a pinch, someone who would help you move or come out and jumpstart your car if you needed it. His friends would later describe him as one of the nicest guys they'd ever met. Aaron wasn't wealthy, he didn't live in a big fancy house, but he was happy with the life he made in Medford. 
His two-bedroom home was enough for him and his three kids. On the night of October 2, 2017, as day turned into night and temperatures dipped down into the low 50s, Aaron was getting comfortable on the couch. He had the girls this week, which meant that the couch would be his bed for the rest of the week. His two youngest daughters shared a room, but he always gave his oldest daughter his own bed. It was a small, inconsequential act of love that he did reflexively and without thought. After making sure the kids were in bed, he most likely texted his girlfriend, Melissa Robinson, goodnight and lay down to go get some rest. Aaron most likely had a lot on his mind, and sleep probably didn't come easy. A beer or two may have helped him ease his thoughts, which most likely centered around Ellie, his oldest daughter. Their relationship had been amazing at one point, but after the divorce, they had slowly drifted apart and things were strained. Ellie was at the age where her world centered around boys, and the boy that had caught her attention was a 19-year-old man named Gavin McFarlane. Aaron did not approve of this relationship. He had been very vocal with Ellie about his disapproval. Gavin was trouble, and he was too old for Ellie. He was at least four years her senior. He hated that he had to be a disciplinarian, but he wanted a better life for his daughter. She was extremely intelligent and bright, and he knew she had a big future ahead of her. The last thing he wanted was for her to get pregnant in Medford by a guy going nowhere. He had already confronted Gavin once and threatened to escalate things if his wishes were not respected. He hoped that would work and that he could get his daughter back on track and focused on her future. Aaron may also have been thinking about the recent break into his home a few days back. Someone had attempted to break into the place while Michelle had been spending the night. The burglar had been spooked and ran away. That had left Aaron shook. He kept a baseball bat near the front door for protection and he began drifting into a dream. He may have glanced over to ensure it was in its place, finding comfort that it was. Somewhere in the middle of REM, Aaron heard something and sat up startled. Who's there? He asked in the dark. I was going to the bathroom and kicked the trash can, Ellie replied. There was no way for Aaron to recognize the deceit in her voice. Ellie had mastered the art of deception. She was a skilled liar. Aaron had no reason to doubt her. Stop scaring me, he responded as he laid back to sleep, glad it wasn't a burglar. The blow to his head must have felt like an explosion, pulling him from a dead sleep to being fully conscious and awake. He was probably in a stupor, confused and struggling to gain his bearings from the concussive blow. He cursed aloud, reflexively and probably lost consciousness from the subsequent blow as Ellie's boyfriend Gavin used Aaron's baseball bat to crush his skull, leaving a bloody mess on the couch where his head lay. pretty intense it's very intense so first as far as the victim did you guys find anything about the victim that you um wanted to shed light on or as far as his character when ellie later talks about um there being some abuse involved me personally i feel like aaron i don't feel like really aaron was the only victim here I feel like he was the primary victim and i think that i have a lot of questions about the sexual abuse only because he had two other daughters that haven't come forward and said they were also abused. So it's hard for me to believe that he would have only been abusing Ellie if he was abusive. I also don't believe that he would have given up his bed. Like that wouldn't have been yeah. something that he would have done. I don't believe that's a selfish act. It's I mean, a, an unselfish. Yeah, it is an unselfish act. Uh, and it's not something that would be normal. I've never experienced a time where, where one of my parents gave up their bed for me. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah. Um, not only that, but the kid is smaller. Typically, your child is smaller, so they fit better on the couch. I feel like he was really trying to make it feel homey because he was divorced 
and they shared custody of the kids. He would have them one week. She would have them the other week. And so I think that was his way of trying to make them feel more at home. Based on cases that I've that I've seen previously, and then even the cases that we've researched or have already done, I find there to be some holes in the story of maybe him sexually abusing her. One that you mentioned, so the other daughters, it's very rare that only one child's abused and not the others. Also, the fact that he would sleep on the couch and wasn't in the room with her or her in the room with him because he could have done that. He could have said, right. hey, you're going to sleep with me. That would have been a little bit strange yeah. um, to a lot of people because of her age. And then also when you hear her interrogation, even though she becomes emotional at the point that she talks about, because she brings it up in the beginning and there's no emotion, but then later when she talks about it, there's some emotion and I don't know that that emotion is attached to her story of abuse or if it's attached to the fact that she's realized that she no longer has what she believes to be a good story as to the events that occurred. Yeah. Here's the other thing that I was thinking about as well is that while they're plotting the murder, right, she's in the bedroom that would be her dad's room with her boyfriend in the dark. If you're worried about your dad molesting you, it would you typically want to be in there. Yeah, you wouldn't be in the room yeah. because he could come in at any moment to molest you if that's what he was doing, you know? And so what would stop your dad from just walking in the room? She felt comfortable enough to have him in the room that she probably knew he wasn't going to come into the bedroom. That's a really good, actually a really good call out. Yeah. Another thing that kind of stuck out to me as well was the fact that if she really was being abused, she had made a comment at one point that he was a great dad until a certain point. And the time frame that she gives is very in line with when her mom and her dad separate. And obviously any kid who's a child of a divorced family is going to have a hard time during that time frame. And so I believe that she had a hard time during that time frame. What do you think about that? Do you think that you had a hard time with divorce? Absolutely. I still do. Not really with the divorce, but the after effects of having parents who are divorced. Yeah. So yeah. I definitely think that there would be some pain related to that. But I find it hard to believe that you would go so many years in a marriage, in a family, and never abuse your children and then start at the point that you're divorcing. Yeah. I think really what she was describing as abuse was more about him be, being more disciplinarian. And I think it started revolving around the time when she started bringing weed on the school bus and dating a guy that they didn't approve of and that was way too old for her to be dating at 15. So I, I think those are the things that triggered the static within their relationship was coming from her behavior. Right. And so I think his, the abuse, and maybe he wasn't good at parenting. Maybe he was a bad parent. I don't know. Maybe he just struggled with parenting. And maybe he did grab her. Maybe he did call her a bitch. I don't see that as abuse per se, as more as I see that as just bad parenting. Right. A couple things as well that I found to be areas where he could have some stress. So obviously we know that he worked at a bar. And that's not to say that you're going to be a drinker because you work at a bar, but she did speak about him drinking and I think he might've had a drinking problem. And I say that just because of some of the comments that had come out and who knows, maybe they're not true. Maybe he wasn't really a drinker. You know, maybe he was a social drinker, but I would say he definitely had characteristics to fall into that. So the divorce was ugly. His wife wanted alimony and child support. She wanted full custody so that she could get Full More alimony child and, and <laughs> child support. And yeah. then they ended up doing shared custody. So in shared custody, 
you share custody. You basically, it's a split schedule. So they would spend a week with their mom, a week with their dad. However, it is that they set it up to be kind of an equal split. Yeah. And generally, no parent in that situation gets child support. Something that I found was that she stayed in a house that they were in prior to the marriage. And something tells me, and I don't know this for sure, but something tells me that he was paying for both houses, which means he had financial pressure. He had pressure from the split, pressure from the kids. Now Ellie's in that age where she's getting into trouble. She's experiencing with drugs. And And boys. Yeah, and boys. Let's talk about- Whenever you add boys, it's always bad. (laughs) Or girls, sometimes. Ellen Fryer went by Ellie. She was 15 going on 20 and probably couldn't wait to grow up. She had seen Gavin, a former student at South Medford High School, hanging around the school and became enamored with him. She would later reach out to him on social media, as most kids do nowadays, and a romance was kindled. Ellie would later compare her relationship to that of Romeo and Juliet, as her parents were very much against the courtship. After all, he was four years her senior and had already graduated high school. When Ellie had been forbidden to see Gavin, she lied to her parents about staying over at a friend's house and would instead stay with Gavin. Lying seemed to come easy to Ellie, who was remarkably intelligent and an exceptional liar. When Aaron, Ellie's dad, found out that Gavin was still seeing his daughter, he went to Gavin's house with a gun. He threatened to file statutory rape charges on Gavin if he didn't stop seeing Ellie. Gavin called the police rather than confront Aaron, but it may have been the right condition to plant a seed in Gavin's mind that any type of continued relationship would come with risk and potential consequences. But Gavin had no intentions to stop seeing Ellie. They had briefly discussed running away together, but Gavin knew Aaron wouldn't just allow him to take his 15-year-old daughter and run away. He knew Aaron would come for them. This may have been around the time that Ellie and Gavin began discussing killing Aaron, enlisting the help of Russell, Gavin's longtime high-functioning autistic friend, who purported to run a protection business. Ellie had been discussing potential abuse amongst her inner social circle with her friends, claiming to be both physically and emotionally abused by her father. She reported that he would call her a bitch and grab her by the neck and pin her to the wall. It is likely that she shared this information with both Gavin and Russell as well. Eventually, the physical abuse would include purported sexual abuse, with Gavin repeating a claim that Aaron had laid next to his daughter in the bed naked and masturbated. There is no corroboration of these claims by anyone, only Ellie's accusation, but... Ellie tended to lie, so we don't know if this part was her Romeo and Juliet fantasy, a fantasy where her knight in shining armor came to her rescue, or if she was truly a victim, struggling to get out of an abusive situation. Gavin and Russell would eventually discuss taking Aaron out amongst themselves, but when Ellie heard about it, she became the advocate for action. She began applying pressure to Gavin, who originally was against the plot. Together, the trio would begin planning the murder. Drawing upon Ellie's victim status, they would devise a plan draw out the layout of the home, discuss the order of events, and plan their movements leading up to the fateful morning of October 2nd. On the night of the planned murder, Gavin and Russell arrived at Ellie's house together. The plan was simple. They would wait for Aaron to fall asleep, and then Gavin would go in and use Aaron's baseball bat, the one that Aaron kept in the home for security, to kill Aaron. If all went well, the first blow would knock Aaron out cold, and the subsequent blows would end his life in silence. This would have been important because Aaron's younger daughters would be asleep in the next room. Any loud noise would wake them up and make them potential witnesses. The trio were counting on a silent and clean murder scene. They could then take the body and dispose of it. It would be days before anyone began looking for Aaron, and by then they would have gotten rid of both the body 
and the murder weapon. When Aaron's body was discovered, there would be no witnesses and no major suspects. No one would suspect Ellie after all. She was a straight-A student. Russell brought a backup weapon, a machete. He planned to use it in case the primary weapon was not where it was supposed to be. This would have been more of a defensive weapon as it would have left a messier crime scene. But Russell was autistic and he was in the protection business, not the murder business. As Gavin and Ellie waited for Aaron to fall asleep, the two cuddled in what would have been Aaron's bedroom. They whispered quietly about a future together, where they would live, how many kids they would raise, and what their names would be. In Ellie's Romeo and Juliet fantasy, she had forgotten that the story ended in tragedy. Instead, she fantasized about a life with Gavin, free of her father's control, free of the limitations he imposed, free to follow her heart and have what she wanted, Gavin. It was early in the morning when they could hear the rumbling of Aaron's snores reverberating through the quiet house. Ellie ventured out on bare feet, quietly to check on her dad and make sure he was asleep. Her heart would have been racing. Everything she wanted was so close. She held her breath, reaching for the bat, afraid that even a loud breath would alert her father to her devilish plot. Her heartbeat thumped in her ears like drums from band class. Her thin fingers wrapped around the baseball bat that sat propped up near where her father had slept peacefully. His snores cut the silence like a buzzsaw in the night. She welcomed it as evidence that he was still asleep. She tiptoed back towards the room where Gavin waited in the dark. As she handed the bat to Gavin, she whispered, I'm ready when you are. She had drawn the line in the sand. It would be his commitment to her, his vow of true love. To turn back now was to admit that he was not the man she thought he was, and so Gavin made the way towards the living room where Aaron slept. Gavin was terrified. Terrified of Aaron and what would happen if he was discovered in the dark, in his home. He had already threatened him with violence in the past, and he believed Aaron would follow through on his threats. He was unfamiliar with the home and froze, his body stiffening. As his foot struck something in the dark, the snoring stopped. Ellie, he asked in the dark, his eyes unfocused and still half asleep. If he had looked for his bat, the plot would have been foiled at that moment. If he had gotten up and investigated the noise, the outcome may have been different. Sorry, Dad, I was just using the bathroom, Ellie lied, thinking fast on her feet. Ellie was a skilled liar, and it flowed naturally. Stop scaring me, he huffed, referencing the robbery attempt that had occurred earlier in the week when he had been home with his girlfriend. He should have been more afraid. The robbery attempt had been the trio's initial attempt to murder him, but they had not anticipated his girlfriend sleeping over, and when they encountered her, they had run away. Aaron had thought it to be a burglary gone awry. Her presence had postponed his demise. Gavin retreated in the dark to the bedroom along with Ellie. They waited for the snoring to resume. When they could hear Aaron snoring in the living room again, Gavin made the treacherous trip once more. Gavin stood over Aaron in the dark, the ambient light and shadows making everything black and gray. He aimed the baseball bat carefully. He didn't want to miss. He couldn't afford to mess this up. He pulled back and used as much force as he could muster, and he brought the bat down in the dark. The first strike sounded like hitting a perfectly pitched baseball. It cracked in the quiet house. The snoring stopped, and Aaron woke up and cursed. His equilibrium would have been unbalanced, and he would have struggled to sit up. When Ellie heard the first strike and her father curse as if on cue, she began climbing out of the window, and along with Russell, they began preparing the car for the second phase of their plan. It would all be over soon. Gavin's second strike would have been harder, the adrenaline driving additional force into the swing. This strike would have sounded softer, the blood pouring from Aaron's head softening the sound. Aaron was a fighter, and his thoughts were about the safety of his daughters, and so he fought to survive. The subsequent blows would have rendered him unconscious. Gavin would continue to swing long after he had crushed Aaron's skull and most of the bones of his face. Gavin heard gurgling as Aaron unconsciously struggled to breathe. He would later state that he continued striking Aaron until the gurgling stopped, and Aaron had succumbed to the onslaught of the strikes. He wouldn't remember how many times he struck the man. Later, blood splatter analysis would indicate that Aaron struggled before dying on the couch. 
The scene would cause Russell to become nauseous, as none of them had expected how bloody the scene would be. So let's talk about the suspects. How do you guys think that things unfolded? And do you think that out of the three, was one of them more culpable or was one of them kind of steering the whole thing? The initial people to talk about actually killing her dad was boyfriend Gavin and his friend Russell. It had also said that Gavin wasn't even for the plan originally. So it kind of sounds like Russell's the main person who really wanted to put the plan together and then Ellie initiated everything after that. Here's what I think. I think that Russell's autistic, so I don't feel like he was in the the best mind frame to really be like the mastermind of this crime. And I think between him, Gavin and Russell, like, I don't know, there's so many times when I'm driving down the highway and I'm talking about killing other drivers (laughs) where I'm just talking about it. I don't really mean it. Like I really want to go out there and murder other drivers, but I'm like, hey, get out of my way before I murder you. And so I think that Gavin and Russell's conversation was more BS and hot air than it was actual like intent. And Russell purported to run a protection business and he grew up in a group home and so maybe he was trying to provide something that he wished he would have had at some point in his life so i really believe that russell may have been as much of a victim as aaron because i i feel like he really didn't have the mental capacity to really understand the like he knew it was wrong but I don't feel like he had the ability to really make a good decision in terms of what he was doing. I really think he was being duped. And I feel Ellie was the driving force behind the murder. Once she heard that they were talking about it, she used that little bit of, of discussion to push that agenda. And she was the fuel. So like if Russell was the car, she was the fuel and Gavin was the, the shooter if you had a drive-by scenario type deal. And I feel like each one played a role, but I felt like really the majority of it was Ellie. Yeah, I agree. I definitely feel like Ellie was kind of the one driving the whole thing because when Gavin was speaking with Russell initially, and to my knowledge and from all the research that we did, it's apparent that Russell's the one that first brought up actually taking him out. Initially, it started as that they were going to help her escape the house, basically run away. Yeah. And then she was telling them that the abuse was getting worse, that things were progressing with her dad. And she was really making them both believe that she was in a dangerous situation, not even just emotional and physical and sexual abuse was taking place, but that she was in some type of danger. And so for Russell, that meant he was kind of going to swoop in and be this hero that he always wanted to be. And um, when people talk about him, they talk about because he did go through the foster care system. There's nothing on his mom. His dad has kind of been a transient position, you know, being homeless, just as Russell was. And Russell had actually been living with somebody for about a year who thought of him as a son. And even her daughter was around him. They hung around with one another. They did family events together. And they spoke very, almost like Russell kind of had the mindset of a kid who hadn't figured everything out yet. And even though he was autistic, they said he was very big on being accepting of everybody and wanting to have like a, a family close environment. And I almost feel like he was duped. And then with Gavin, I feel like obviously as a boyfriend and as a guy, period, you want to be a protector, 
And I feel like when Ellie was coming to him and giving him these, you know, these stories of what she was experiencing, that he was thinking we need to take action. I don't think that he was on board with wanting to take somebody's life. I think that kind of became pressure because Ellie went from it being a conversation between Gavin and Russell to it being now Ellie speaking to Russell directly. Yeah. And so then I kind of feel like the push then came from Russell and Ellie, but Russell's, I don't want to say he's completely unaware of what he was doing, but Russell's thinking that she's in danger. Yeah. So what are we going to do to protect Ellie? Cause she's in danger. Yeah. Um, some of the things that, that didn't come out during their trials were that Gavin, he had been in church. He had actually enrolled in school. So he was actually going to college. He was very active at the church. He was an usher. He worked in the youth program. And not to say that people in a church don't do bad things, because we obviously know that that's not accurate, but he was very involved in doing good things for, for the community, for himself. It appeared that there was kind of a drop off once he started dating Ellie. So it looks like he might have kind of pulled away from church, pulled away from things once him and, and Ellie got involved. And so that just really kind of makes me wonder who the bad influence was. So we assume it's him because he's the older one, but who really was the bad influence in that relationship? One of the things that I was going to say is that Ellie did a good job of using persuasion against Gavin because she used the uh, persuasion tactic of urgency. She added a sense of urgency, like the physical and sexual abuse is escalating, escalating. And if you don't do something now, and then there was also talk about her potentially being pregnant. Um, I was going to ask you guys a question. Have you guys ever told a lie to either a friend or a family or whatever that was so stupid, but then you had to continue to lie to stay on top of that lie. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I can't remember like a specific thing right this second, but I know I've done that. Yeah. And what about you? Have you ever done that? I can't or? think of anything. I'm sure I have. Yeah. I'm not saying haven't, but so, I can't think of anything. So I have too. I'm thinking about it from the perspective of when Ellie told those guys, hey, I want you to do this. Right. Yeah. And maybe they weren't in the really mind frame of actually doing it, but they agreed like, yeah, yeah, we're going to kill your dad. We're going to kill him. We're going to kill that sucker. He's, you know, he's abusing you. We're going to kill him. Right. That's one thing to say. That is one thing. The more she pushed it and the more she, she solidified it, the more she put a date on the calendar, the more she said, this needs to happen by this time. The, the pressure continues to build where because of persuasion, you have a tendency to be consistent. And because they're all agreeing to this as they get closer and closer to the actual the act happening and they're actually going through the process of planning it, which is all being driven by Ellie, by the way, you get more and more to the point where you're having to execute whether you want to or not. You've overly committed to the act by your actions and by your deeds and by your words. And I think it's kind of similar to like a lie when you start telling a lie. Now, because you've already lied, you have to keep lying in order to stay with the story because once you break the story, now you're found out. Right. And a lot of her friends talked about her lying, just about yeah. insignificant things that yeah. she was just known to be... Like a pathological liar. Yeah. yeah. She was just known to lie about nothing. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why I question the sexual abuse. Not that she couldn't have been sexually abused, but like if there was some evidence prior to that happening, I feel like maybe it would be a little bit more believable. Not just that, but when the police were talking to Ellie... And this is recorded in her interrogation when he's talking about her mom's reaction when her mom found out. And mind you, this is her mom is her dad's ex-husband. So just think about the fact that even though you're not with somebody anymore, 
doesn't mean that you want something bad to happen to them. And definitely when they're the father or the mother of your children, you don't want your your children to experience the pain of losing a loved one. And even though you may not be with that person anymore, you're still going to feel a sense of loss as well. So when the police were telling her how her mom responded, they said her mom collapsed to the floor. Yeah. I can't find myself collapsing to the floor. I try to put myself in each position. I cannot imagine myself collapsing to the floor if I believed that my child was being abused by this person in any way, shape or form. I would be like, oh, dang. (laughs) Oh, I thought you meant because you wouldn't really care that bad. (laughs) No, I don't know the reaction that I would have. I would completely be devastated. So when I hear about the mom collapsing to the floor, that's the response of somebody with somebody who they don't have those types of feelings about. Yeah. So now Ellie was the only one who was under under the age of 18. Um, So when they went to trial, they all went to trial separately. They were charged together, but they all went to trial separately. And I feel like for the person who kind of led the whole thing, she got the least judgment in the whole thing. She was the youngest one. And typically that's how it is. The youngest person typically gets a smack on the hand because you assume like two grown men shouldn't have been manipulated by a 15-year-old child. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) They got played. But you know what? She wasn't an ordinary 15-year-old. She was pretty bright. She actually was like a mastermind. She's and, like Professor and, you know, X. And and <laughs> what's funny is that when you hear people talk about all of them, not a whole lot of people talked about Russell because not a lot of people knew Russell, but people did talk about both Ellie and her boyfriend. And when they spoke about Ellie, they would talk about how smart she was, how she was quiet. I didn't hear anything bad about her boyfriend, except for people who did not know him, who would say, and just a couple comments that I saw of random people who like went to school with him or had seen him and were like, yeah, he was kind of a weirdo. Well, why was he a weirdo? Was he a weirdo? Cause he was quiet or cause he was kind of withdrawn. Everyone who's quiet and withdrawn is a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. What about the evidence? For the evidence, it was Aaron's body, the bat that they used for the murder weapon. And then there was bloody towels and blankets and sheets and clothes and the bigger piece of evidence was written plans to commit the murder there were plans to kill russell's father as well yeah that's crazy and there wasn't a whole lot of conversation with him about that i heard a comment where they said that he wanted to kill him because for disrespect from some year to another year (laughs) like he was being like he was being tried for it for like justice (laughs) like for five years of disrespect like or something like that I don't understand why there are so many cases where people are writing down their plans. Yeah. And then, like, you hear about it all the time, and then you go to commit something, and you still decide to write it down. I'm going to leave evidence. Well, you know, (laughs) I don't think they really think that way. I think when you write something down, that's a way of manifesting for something to happen. And it's a level of commitment. It's a commitment, yeah. And when you really write it down, that, that turns into a plan, it does. Once you put it on paper, it turns into a plan. And I think sometimes that it's a way for somebody to get their so many thoughts of it onto something where they can organize their thoughts. And, you know, I can understand the boyfriend and Russell being detached. But at the scene itself, Ellie actually went and said goodbye to her sisters, kissed him goodbye, got her dog, which later she said she didn't know where her dog was. She was playing stupid for a very long time. But she did all those things like it was a normal day. And she even talked about when they pulled out the body. I don't know if she was physically present when they were wrapping him up. Russell actually got sick. 
So when he entered the home, because he wasn't in there during him and Ellie were both outside the house. Um, when Russell entered the house to help him get the body out, he talked about getting sick and having to go to the bathroom. And then Ellie talks about cleaning up blood at the front door. Like it was nothing. Yeah. Even, you know, that's still somebody who at one point meant something to you, even if they don't currently mean something to you now, you would think for a normal person that there would be some type of emotion during all that. And there was actually a comment made when they got into the car about what a rush they were having and how they couldn't believe they just did it. How much of that is just hype because you're with your friends? Because typically when you do something crazy and you're with your friends, you're still in that high, that adrenaline high, which is like, woo, that was awesome. Yeah. And then you're like, as you think about it, you're like, oh, that was really stupid. As for the sentences, the perpetrators were not all adults and one mental capacity was being challenged. None of the suspects were tried together. However, each was ultimately convicted and sentenced. On October 3rd, 2017, all three suspects were charged. Then on October 13th, 2017, all three suspects pleaded not guilty and were indicted. For the first suspect, Ellie, though originally charged as a minor, Ellie was moved to adult court and tried as an adult. On January 4th, 2019, Ellie's plea was guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and no contest to conspiracy to commit a class a felony on october 2nd 2019 ellie was convicted and sentenced by judge lisa grief at the jackson county circuit court she was charged with conspiracy to commit murder and got 20 years for that she was charged with conspiracy to commit a class a felony and got five years there is an option for good behavior and that option would become available on Friday, October 3rd, 2042. And post-prison supervision would be three years. Ellen Nolan, which is Ellie's grandmother, said about her sentencing that she felt the sentencing is excessive and that, yes, there should be punishment for these crimes, but not to this extent. And Aaron's girlfriend said that justice had been served and no, you know what, I was a teenager at one point too, and she made the wrong choice. For the second suspect, Ellie's boyfriend, Gavin, Gavin was ultimately the one who carried out the murder. He swung the bat that ended Aaron's life on October 2nd, 2017. He was probably the most cooperative and honest of the three suspects when they were all interrogated. He certainly was the first to come clean and the first to give the sequence of events to detectives. On August 9, 2018, Gavin was charged with and pled not guilty to rape in the third degree and sexual abuse in the second degree. On September 5, 2018, Gavin was charged with and pled not guilty to three counts of sodomy in the third degree. On October 5, 2018, Gavin pled guilty and this prevented a trial by jury that was scheduled for February 4, 2019 and was convicted and sentenced by Judge Lisa Grief at the Jackson County Circuit Court, for which he got life in prison for with a minimum of 25 years, tampering with physical evidence slash conspiracy to commit murder, which got him 10 years, post-prison supervision, and then all other charges were dismissed to include rape, sexual abuse, and sodomy charges. Michelle Robinson, Aaron's girlfriend, spoke in the court saying that the pain that Aaron must have felt in his last moments still keep her up at night over a year later. I wouldn't think there would be a lot of pain. I don't think he felt a lot of pain, but that's just my thought. And also, 
I find it very surprising that he pled guilty and didn't get charged with the, the sexual assault or the rape because that would have impacted his time in jail as well. The fact that he didn't have a record and the fact that he did come clean as quickly as he did when they were interrogated. And I think this was probably a, you know, hey, thank you for doing the right thing. We're going to keep this off your record because, of course, it would have made him a sex offender, which is even worse than being a, a convict and trying to get a job and everything else. Yeah. So, For the third suspect, Russell, it was evidence to law enforcement detectives in the court that Russell was pulled into the plans, but that did not absolve him of his role, despite attempts to have him designated as unfit to stand trial. It also was his handwriting that was noted on all the plans that were made. On August 11th, 2021, Russell Pierce Jones pled no contest to and was convicted and sentenced for conspiracy to commit murder, attempt to commit a Class A felony, and all other charges were dismissed. So for Ellie, she is housed in an undisclosed youth facility. So this was part of the deal with her being charged. Even though she was charged as an adult, her attorneys really wanted for her to be in a juvenile facility because you have more programs available to you. And they had it set to where she would be able to be in those facilities. Typically, you would be in there till you're 18. They had it set up to where she would be there till she's 25, which is October 27th, 2026. So here in a few years, she'll be moving on to an adult facility. What's unique about this is that her family gets to go be with her a lot. It's almost like a group home setting more than it is prison. And um, there's been pictures that, and we'll share some of these, but there's been pictures of like her 21st birthday with her family, with her sisters and her mom and her grandma. They see her regularly. Gavin is incarcerated at the Eastern Oregon Correctional Institution. His earliest possible release date is October 3rd, 2042. Russell Pierce Jones is incarcerated at the Oregon State Correctional Institution, and his earliest possible release date is April 4th, 2031. Due to the fact that all the offenders were charged as adults, they all have felony records. Ellie's name change was most likely done to prevent unwanted contact from the public and to alleviate a stigma that one may have associated merely based on her name and association with her case. Her mom first tried to change her name while she was a juvenile, and um, they said no. And then Ellie herself had to do the filing, and um, she has officially changed her name. Cases of patricide, which is basically murder of one's parent, or parasite is murder of one's parent. Patricide is the father, matricide is the mother. They're actually quite rare. According to the FBI, there are 200 to 300 cases per year that occur in the U.S., 29 in Canada, 14 in Australia, and 9 in the United Kingdom. According to Dr. Kathleen M. Hyde, who specializes in juvenile violence and adolescent parasite offenders, most offenders are adults in that they are the age of 18 years or older at the time of the murder. However, one in, fi in five parasites are carried out by offenders under the age of 18, with 30% of those being under the age of 20. In her book, Why Kids Kill Their Parents, Child Abuse and Adolescent Homicide, Dr. Hyde describes it a typology for these offenders. The severely abused parasite offender, the severely mentally three parasite offender, and the dangerously antisocial parasite offender. Where does Ellie fall in on that? <laughs> so the severely abused would be obviously somebody who's been abused for years. And there's been a number of cases, some where the governor has released them, where it was significant abuse and where it was known to be like where they could prove it, where they could corroborate the evidence. So we'll um, post some of those things in the show notes for you. And then, of course, if you um, subscribe to our Patreon, you'll get some additional information about this case as well. 
If I had to guess, I would say she's dangerously antisocial. <laughs> That's what I would guess. So there are a couple of things that I believe uh, that could have prevented the situation from spiraling out of control for all the parties that are involved. Uh, starting with Aaron, it's never a good idea to threaten someone with violence. This never leads to anything positive. As a father, Aaron would have been better off reporting the relationship to authorities and having Gavin charged with statutory rape. Love makes you crazy, and trying to manage crazy is completely insane. Um, as for Ellie... If she was in fact being abused, whether that's physically, emotionally, or sexually, then she should have reported it. Any type of abuse should be reported. Murder is never a solution outside of self-defense, and you can't claim self-defense if the victim is sound asleep on the couch. And as for Gavin, who potentially fell victim to the hero complex, he may have believed that he was rescuing his love from a life of abuse. What he should have really done was report that abuse to authorities rather than take law into his own hands. Uh, I know that's easy for me to say. I'm not in his shoes, but murder is never the option, and... Reporting it is, should always be your first course of action. I don't believe Russell had the mental capacity to handle Ellie's manipulation. He saw himself as a protector, and that served Ellie's purpose. If someone is attempting to get you to do something that is illegal, don't do it. And most importantly, report it. There are options available that keep you out of trouble, especially in a case such as substantiated abuse allegations. So really the moral of the story is, if you see something, say something. Some of the major differences that I just wanted to point out about where the three are currently residing in their facilities is the level of freedom that Ellie has. She has very unmonitored visits with her family. She can do celebrations with her family. I do not know because there are some juvenile facilities. They allow for you to leave almost, I don't want to call it a vacation because that's not what, it's, what, what it is that they call it, but I can't think of the name of it right now, but I'm not sure if that's something that's available to her. Because she's listed as a juvenile, that means that you cannot get any information about where she currently resides. As for Gavin and Russell, I know that we mentioned where both of them are located. With either of those facilities, they're allowed to receive mail, they can text, and they can even receive video calls. And I'm not sure if that's done based on a certain time frame, timeline, or whatever, but even as a non-family member or non-friend, you're able to write them. So if anybody's interested in writing them, we will list their addresses in our Patreon. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.